Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, let's go ahead and turn this morning into our Bibles, or you can turn in the bulletin. The sermon text is printed there again this week. It wasn't last week, but we have it here for us this week. And again, we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 20 as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel. So again, if you would turn there with me to the gospel of Luke, we will look at chapter 20, picking up where we left off last week and read verses 19 through 26 together. And Luke writes, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable. That was the parable of the wicked tenants, which we looked at last week and which precedes this passage. They had told that he had told this parable against them. But they, that is the scribes and chief priests, feared the people. Verse 20. So they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Notice how they're buttering him up, right? With words of flattery. It's like when you say, no offense, but whatever you say afterwards is always offensive, right? So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose, li whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. If you go and visit the Flagler Museum just up the road from us on Palm Beach, or if you visit attractions in a town like St. Augustine, which also has rich history and, and places like that, in fact, I'm sure there's other places which do this, you might encounter though those machines where you can uh, put a penny in, and you usually also put a quarter, I think, in at the same time, or maybe a dollar, you know, inflation is probably more expensive these days, but you put a, a penny in, and you, you know, slide the lever, and through the turning of gears and the application of uh, a lot of pressure and force, on that penny or that coin will be stamped an image. It will be stamped a logo. Again, you can go to the Flagler Museum, at least last time I was there, and they, they'd put like a train car image on it, you know, Flagler logo or whatever. St. Augustine, you know, something similar. I'm sure there's other places which do it. But you put the penny in, pull the lever, gears turn, pressure is applied, and that logo is stamped there on the coin 
for you to be a commemorative coin with that image of wherever you are placed upon it. Or think about, you know, those who collect coins, rare coins that have been issued over the years. Things like the Susan B. Anthony coin or think of silver dollars. Not really so rare, but, you know, a special coin with an image on it, a little bit of a larger coin. Buffalo nickels, things like that. Or even think about, you know, when sports teams will win championships, you can usually buy commemorative coins, which aren't currency, but, you know, it's a collector coin that has their their logo on it, and commemorates, again, something special. Well, whatever it might be, hold that image in your mind as you find yourself this morning looking again, kind of over the shoulder of Luke, over the shoulder of the gospel writer, as he recalls these ever-increasing and ever more hostile conversations and interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. Again, think about how he got here. Following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus rides humbly on a colt, and he rides humbly to the shouts of Hosanna. From that point forward, really, Jesus... has been in direct conflict with the religious establishment of his day, the religious elite of his day. And as such, he has cleansed the temple. He has had his authority and his position challenged and questioned. He has told, as we saw again right before this passage, And as it was referenced in the passage, he has told the provocative and not so subtle parable of the wicked tenants. Well, on the heels of those conversations and events, what we see here in verses 19 to 26 is these same religious leaders approach him again. And as these events continue to happen, they approach him here increasingly agitated. And increasingly incensed. And as a result, increasingly trying to trap him in some way. Whatever they can do to trip him up, whatever they can do to tarnish his reputation and his teaching, they're up for it. But if you've noticed, up to this point, so far, most of their attempts have been to trap him religiously. They're trying to lay these traps for Jesus, you know, these 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 hypothetical theological questions, these theological rabbit trails, these theological and and legal, you know, law of Moses hair splitting, in a way to trap Jesus somehow religiously, get him to say something, to blaspheme, to offend religious sensibilities, again, in a way where the people who are continuing to follow him and admire him would fall away would reject him, would abandon their interest and abandon their support of him. But if they can't do that, if they can't ensnare Jesus religiously, and so far again they have been unable, they are not above using other means. In fact, they would be just as happy They would be just as satisfied if they could trap Jesus and undermine him legally or undermine him politically. In other words, if they can't get the Hebrew people to reject him outright, 
then if the leaders can get him to offend the Roman political authorities, then this would be just as effective. And you can see that here in sort of their, their scheming and how Luke describes this account. Because if that happens, then instead of Jesus being tried as a false prophet or a false messiah, he could be tried as a political prisoner. He could be tried as a rebel against the Roman jurisdiction or authorities, someone who wants to throw off Roman rule. And in so doing, he could then be, in their minds, you know, kind of like Luke Skywalker, where they would be glad, the Roman authorities, or excuse me, the, the, the religious authorities would be glad for the empire here to strike back, right? That's what they're kind of up to in this moment. Well, again, notice this latest scheme of theirs as we see it in verses 19 through 26 is this combination effort to trip up Jesus in one of these two ways, religiously or politically or both. Think about what's coming this afternoon. We have the NFC and AFC championship games if you're a football fan. Well, here, this is the religious leadership trying to employ kind of both a, a pass game and a run game. All right? They want to have whatever they can do to trip Jesus up. A pass game, a run game. This is like fighting a war on two fronts. And the weapon, though, the, the quarterback of their kind of twofold offense, if you will, here, their weapon of choice, that is the religious leadership, their weapon of choice is a coin, a denarius, which it was called. And you might know from your reading, or you might know if you have a study Bible, that a denarius here is a small unit of currency that would be equal to a day's wage for a common laborer or a common worker in that time. But again, because the Hebrew people here and where Christ lives is under Roman jurisdiction, the providers of these coins, or the, the mint, if you will, of these coins, like that of a denarius, would be, of course, the Roman government. And as such, then, the coins bear the image of the current emperor, who in this case is Tiberius Caesar. And so if you have that coin, if you have a denarius, on one side you would find his profile. So again, think of like a Susan B. Anthony coin or a silver dollar. You would have the profile, you would have the headshot, in this case of Tiberius Caesar. And on that side of the coin, you would have the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine Augustus. Well, Augustus is a reference to the first Roman emperor, who at this point is Tiberius' adopted father, and who, again, this cult of worship begins to be built around. As the first emperor and those who succeed him are thought to be gods. And so here you can hear that language. Son of the divine Augustus. And with just that one side of the coin, then, you should begin to feel sort of the tension of this story. You should feel the tension, particularly, of a Hebrew who lived then. Son of the divine Augustus. Well, in the mind of a Hebrew, there's only one who is divine. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But then look forward. And feel the tension for why Christ's claim as the Son of God, again, Son of the divine 
Augustus. Well, Jesus is the son of God, proper. And notice the tension. Notice how the Roman authorities would find this to be curious, a curious title and problematic. Because again, they use this own sort of phrasing for their emperors. And that's just one side of the coin. Now, flip it over, right? Flip the coin over, what will be on the other side? That's one side of the denarius. Well, on the other side would be the image of a female Roman goddess thought to be the goddess of peace with the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means what? High priest. High priest. And so now, again, the tension begins to grow even more. Hebrews have their own priesthood, that of Aaron, that of the Levites. They have their own high priest, again, who alone is reserved for specific roles in worship, sacred roles, exclusive roles. And yet Rome, having their own emperor cult and their own emperor worship, along with the pantheon of other gods and their surrounding culture that they would recognize, gives the title here of priest, again, to their emperor. And of all the gods in the surrounding area, he is the highest of priests. He is the one to whom tribute and sacrifice is due. And now you can hear the tension. Now you can feel it. But now think about the tension again with Jesus. Because what does Jesus claim to be? Well, Jesus himself is the great royal high priest. Think of the language in Hebrews or the language in 1 Peter that Jesus, as the high priest, again, doesn't offer a sacrifice which is borrowed, but he offers himself as the perfect and final atonement. You see, in this one story, you can feel the winds around Jesus begin to swirl tighter and tighter and tighter. There's the high-pressure system of the religious leaders against Jesus. There's the low-pressure system of the political climate and the, the Roman culture around Jesus. And it all begins to brew into this Category 5 storm, which will make landfall at Calvary. But in this specific trap, again, this is the, the strategy, if you will. This is the net that the, the scribes and, treat, and, and priests are trying to cast out in a way that might catch Jesus. But how? How does that work? Well, again, think of their strategy. Think of what they're up to here. If Jesus goes too far in validating this coin with its inherently blasphemous language to a Hebrew of that day, then he cannot possibly be a prophet or a rabbi. And he certainly wouldn't be the Messiah. How could a Hebrew possibly do business with a coin like this? How could they keep it in their pockets? That would be an outrage. It, it's offensive by its very nature. And so again, Jesus, as a self-respecting Hebrew, an aspiring rabbi, maybe even the Messiah, though of course they don't think that here in this passage, certainly. Well, then he'll, he'll certainly call the people to reject this currency and what it stands for. And if he doesn't, then he is a traitor. He is a sellout someone not deserving of their attention, and they can then knock him off his rabbinic pedestal 
if you will. But that's only one side. Because on the other hand, if Christ does do that, if he does call for the rejection of this denarius and this defacing of currency and the overthrow of all that it implies, if he insists that Caesar is fraudulent, no claim to rule the people, certainly isn't divine, no claim to a priesthood, then what's going to happen? Well, you know what's going to happen. The religious elite around him in that moment would nod their heads and they would, they would smile, they would applaud such a stand, only then to do what? Well, think in your movies. They would start twisting their, their mustaches, right, in the shadows, and they would alert the Roman authorities to someone who is now propagating such rebellion, such disobedience, such treason, even. And now, can you see how in this account, in this small account, the seeds are being sown for what will also then be true at the cross? What will also be true at the cross? The religious authorities cannot get rid of Jesus on their own. The people believe in him too strongly, so they must bring in the Romans to dispatch of him by painting him as this sort of upstart king. Remember, they nail king of the Jews on his cross, sort of disrespectfully, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Here is this king who is unable to achieve his kingdom, but Rome won't take any chances with a title like that. And so again, they go along here together while the seeds are being sown for what will ultimately happen at the cross. But for the moment we have here in this particular passage, what is it that Jesus exactly means when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's? Well, what Christ means here is to identify, very helpfully for us, because this is still a struggle today, to identify for us the overlapping but distinct spheres of life that we as his people inhabit. Again, both then and now. For we as believers, we as Christians in this case, inhabit simultaneously the city of man. Think about that. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Rome, Lake Worth, Boynton Beach, West Palm. We, we, we inhabit the city of man. 21st century North America, first century Middle East. But at the same time, we inhabit also the city of God. The city, again, whose architect and builder is God, the city which is yet to come. Think about how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies that they may be like his glorious body. Citizens of heaven awaiting our true Lord. Or think about Hebrews 11. On the heels of that hall of faith where the author lists all those who were faithful even through hardships and trials to the gospel, 
he writes this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then here, John described that city in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then finally, 1 Peter echoes the same truth. But you, as a believer, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, hear that language, that, that idea of dual citizenship. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you from darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, beloved, I urge you as, what? Sojourners, aliens, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, Jesus here establishes this principle, which the apostles then build upon, that we are dual citizens. We inhabit simultaneously two spheres of life. And this dual citizenship, if you think of it that way, brings with it dual responsibilities. One of which, though, is to not neglect the city of man. We don't neglect the city of man in lieu of us being citizens of the city of God. But instead, in, that, in, those, in those verses, what do we do? What's, what's our call? We bring the ethics and the values of the heavenly city to bear. To bear here in the earthly city. How did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. In fact, if you had continued to read in that passage from 1 Peter that I mentioned, he actually goes on to say this. Be subject, so right on the heels of telling you that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession, sojourners and aliens. In the very next breath, Peter says this. But be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom 
as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The Apostle Paul does the very same thing in his letter. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And here is where Paul really then ties in with Jesus in this account. For because of this, all this stuff that Paul just said, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. You see here in this passage, in this, in this brief encounter, Jesus is laying the foundation here for what the apostles, again, in their letters, then begin to build on in their instruction. And this informs, of course, as Christians, even today, you know, our obedience to things like yeah, the, the tax laws or, or traffic laws, you know. I, I, don't like, I don't like that last one. You know, I like to drive fast. But, you know, even obeying traffic laws is, is part of Romans 13 here, right? Civic obedience. We are not free to disregard such rules and in doing so claim Christ's lordship as the, as the, as the reason, you know. Try speeding on 95 and getting pulled over. And saying you're doing so because that law has no power over you as a Christian, right? That I have Jesus as my ultimate Lord, right? No, that, that, would be, that would be silly. That would be foolish. It would also be unproductive in our witness, would it not? In fact, if you notice here, this way of thinking, again, informs our submission to the governing authorities in the city of man, but it also informs our missional and evangelistic strategy to actually seek the good of those cities and those communities and those states and those countries in which we live. Us, you know, us disregarding traffic laws and driving recklessly doesn't benefit or serve the cities that God has placed us in, in which we are called to actually flourish and to seek the prosperity of them. Again, I referenced, you know, Love Lake Worth, that serving event coming up in February. Well, that's the heartbeat of such a thing that Pastor Ron has done at Coastal Chapel. Seeking the good and the welfare of the cities, the city of man, by bringing to the city of man the love and the service of the city of God. Again, this is what we are to do. Instead of Christians withdrawing from the world and withdrawing from culture, we're to engage it. We're to live within it. But in doing so, bring the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel to bear. We engage the world, engage the culture, engage the city of man in a way that we embody the hymn, 
this is my father's world. This is his world, and we are now called as his ambassadors to bring his heavenly and gospel priorities to bear. That's what it means when Christ teaches elsewhere for us to be salt and light, for us to be a city on a hill, to not hide our light, but to shine it. What's amazing is this very actual um, reality also surfaces in the Old Testament, if you recall. When the people of God are in exile in Babylon, what does Jeremiah have to say? Well, you've heard it before. Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage. that They may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. I mean, think about that. Think about how that ties in the language of 1 Peter. That we are exiles, we are aliens, we are sojourners, but we have been sent sovereignly and providentially in order then to flourish and to bring the gospel to bear. You see, Jesus here calls to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's as a concise but clear call to his followers at all times and places, again, to engage to evangelize, to inhabit, to influence the sphere of mankind for God's glory and for our good. But, what's the question that always comes up? But, what about, as we draw to a close, what about the times when the governing authorities or cities or countries ask for more than things like taxes or speed limits or civic obedience, but instead ask us to compromise our faith or to compromise our devotion to Christ. What then? Well, again, this is where Jesus shows his rhetorical genius and also, though, his practical wisdom for a question just like that, which is asked at all times and places. The answer that Christ gives here is that we are to render unto Caesar the things that we just mentioned. But implied in that answer is the truth that you also don't render to Caesar that which he isn't owed. Think about that. What Caesar, and again, Caesar here stands for the larger government at any time, any place, Right, even for us today as Christians in, in North America, what Caesar isn't owed is what? Worship. He's not owed worship. He's not owed devotion in that regard, in that kind of devotion. He's not owed trust for your salvation. Those are things reserved and rendered unto God and God alone. And that's exactly why Hebrews then, and Christians later, were right when they refused to acknowledge Caesar as God. 
They were right to never bow the knee to him in worship, refusing to recognize the emperor cult. This is why Christians today, again, are right to take a stand against things which violate our ultimate devotion and allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's why we stand up against legislation or things which compromise the core values of our faith. We stand up against cultural evils which violate the faith. You see, we don't render unto Caesar the things that he is not owed, namely worship, namely ultimate truth. A helpful way to summarize it is this. We obey Caesar's commands so long as God doesn't forbid it. And we obey what Caesar forbids so long as God doesn't command it. You see how that works? We render unto God worship and devotion and adoration and ultimate allegiance and not unto any man, king, or government, for Christ is the ultimate prince of peace and the government shall be upon his shoulders. This also means that we don't render unto Caesar that which is God's, like I mentioned a second ago, including what? Our desire for salvation. You might be thinking, well, I, well, I don't do that. I, I trust Jesus as my Savior. I, I, I've accepted him in my heart. I, I've said the prayer. I've, I've walked the aisle. I've, do, I've done whatever. And that might be true. But think then practically. Think beyond that. Think functionally for many of us. There's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved, namely the name of Christ, and not what? Not the name of democracy, even. Not the name of a political party. Not whoever does or doesn't inhabit the White House. It's not any of those things when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our ultimate hope, when it comes to the ultimate arrival of the kingdom, and yet how many Christians, and we can all fall into this trap, myself included, how many Christians continue to make the mistake of looking in those areas for their salvation? Or, maybe not for their eternal salvation, but their functional salvation. That the kingdom of God will only finally advance if this person is elected, or this party is in power, if only this social scenario would be achieved, whatever it might be. And you know me, you've heard me speak before. There are certain things to take stands on. And there are certainly certain parties and certain candidates which are much closer to the values of the Christian ethic. I believe that wholeheartedly, okay? But we don't look to those things for our ultimate salvation or the ultimate arrival of the kingdom because to do so, again, is to render unto Caesar... What's God's? God alone can save. God alone will bring his kingdom to bear in his timing and in his ways. God alone is the king above all kings, the God above all gods, whose ways are higher than our ways. And God was just as much on his throne during the New Testament, again, with all that his people endured, with all the corruption of governments and earthly Thrones. We often think the call to submit to governing authorities here happened in this, like, you know, um, utopian civic vacuum. <laughs> it certainly did not. Corruption in government and so forth 
was rampant then. We would, it would make even us blush today as we consider corruption in our civic structures as well. And yet God was just as much on his throne then as he is today. And if we continue to fix our eyes on him and continue to render to him that which he alone is due, namely our worship, namely our devotion. He promises to be with us even unto the end of the age. And when he comes again, what will he do? He will wipe away every tear. That's how Revelation 21 continued. As John considered the arrival of the new Jerusalem, the arrival of the heavenly city, Christ, the true king, will wipe away every tear. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And just like the scribes here in Luke 20 marveled, marveled, and were silent in response to Christ's answer. When that day comes, we too will marvel. We too very well might be silent like they were, but not in disbelief and not in disappointment, but in holy, awestruck adoration at the God, the King who has come, at the God, the King who has kept his promises and who has made and will make all things new. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your world. Everything is yours. There's not a single square inch of the universe where you have not appointed Christ as Lord and Father, we know that, and we claim that, and we believe that. And we cherish the reality that we are ultimately citizens of heaven, awaiting that final day and the arrival of what you have for us. But we also know that you have left us here purposely in the city of man, that we might be ambassadors, that we might be salt and light. We might be cities on a hill. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom from above to navigate that dual citizenship in a way that is pleasing to you and faithful to your gospel. It's not easy. I don't mean to paint in broad strokes and disregard the minutia of such a reality, the hard decisions that have to be navigated as we are citizens of both kingdoms, if you will, particularly in a day like today where so much rages around us, where so much of the Christian heritage in this country is crumbling or under fire. And yet, ultimately, Lord, we know that the kingdom that Christ came to establish is so much bigger than this one city of man that we find ourselves in. And so, Father, would you 
somehow at the same time, give us that perspective, but help us not to be flippant. Help us not to not care, because we know we are called to do that. We are called to engage. We are called to bring your priorities to bear in the political arena, in the social arena, in the marketplace. But Lord, would you help us to do so again with the measure of gospel perspective that empires rise and fall, kingdoms come and go, but the gospel remains, Christ remains, that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so, Father, whatever you have called us to do and whoever you have called us to be in that picture, we pray for your boldness and your blessing. And again, we pray for your spirit to be upon us, that ultimately we would bring glory to you and that we would advance your kingdom in the way that you have ordained for us to do. So again, Father, thank you for Holy Scripture, which does counsel us and convict us and encourage us. Would your Holy Spirit ultimately be our teacher and instruct us in what we should do and and who we should be? Again, for your glory. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name.